right, folks, welcome to Passing Period and All of the Above Podcast Extra. We like to drop these in between our full episodes, which come at you every other week, chock full of deep dives into all the issues surrounding our schools today. Um, But Passing Period is a time for us to take a look at stories that may not have made it into our most recent full episodes. And today we have a story out of Chalkbeat, um, an article by Matt Barnum and Alex Zimmerman um, looked at a study, a recent study, by Andrew Bacher Hicks and Elijah De La Campa, who are both doctoral students at Harvard. And they wrote this study called Social Costs of Proactive Policing, the Impact of NYC's Stop and Frisk Program on Educational Attainment. And in their study, they found that the ratcheting up of the policing tactic of stop and frisk led to more New York City public middle school students dropping out of high school, and it led to fewer of them enrolling in college. The harmful effects were particularly large for black students who also bore the brunt of stop and frisk. The study focuses on New York City middle schools between 2006 and 2012, which was a period when this controversial policing tactic substantially increased before a judge ruled it to be racially discriminatory in 2013. And the study's findings are relevant for districts around the country that are ratcheting up their police presence in response to safety concerns. In the short run, the tactic led to notable upticks in school absence rates, particularly for black students who were 1.4 percentage points more likely to be chronically absent from school in areas with substantially more stops. Now, I'm going to have Jeff comment on this because I know Jeff began his teaching practice in New York City schools, and I'm sure Jeff has a lot to say about this. But um, we do have to take a quick timeout to bring you a um, paid sponsorship by Michael Bloomberg, who would like you to consider him for the upcoming um, election, this, that, and whatever. I'm joking. This obviously isn't a paid sponsorship, but I am sure <laughs> but you've it come across. Could be, it, it could he's be. He's out there paying everybody they are right now. Everywhere. Yeah, I, I bring up Michael Bloomberg's name in class and the kids just light up because they're like, I know that name. I know that name. They see it everywhere. Um, TV, social media, YouTube, just all over the place. Um, but in any case, of course, Bloomberg has received a lot, a lot of criticism for his involvement in Stop and Frisk or him being the mayor um, during this time when Stop and Frisk was really just um, just wild and um you know of course he says he regrets it and he um eventually stopped it but the truth is a judge is uh, why it stopped a judge ruling it to be discriminatory jeff um talk to us what what are your thoughts about this study that showed that uh absenteeism and dropout rates dropped during or sorry increased during stop and frisk yeah so you know on the one hand the results uh of this study are certainly not surprising right the um anything that's a such a widespread negative social phenomenon Mm -hmm. we would expect to have some negative ripple effect on educational outcomes and attainment of the students and families it's impacting Uh, so you know on a certain level it's like it's good to get the data but also like okay we we assumed it was doing some harm right 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 um but as someone who as you said uh really came up as an educator in new york and came up at that time so 2006 2012 i was teaching i was working as a coach so that was like towards the end of my time in the classroom Mm -hmm. when i became a coach and then um when i became an administrator 
And all of which, uh, or, or all of that period of time, I was working in East Harlem, working in the South Bronx, um, and then with a network of schools, but mostly in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, Stop and Frisk was, it was a very real, very sort of ever-present phenomenon in the lives of students. And particularly, uh, particularly male students. Um, and, and, you know, the, so what's interesting about the like racial breakdown data on this is what we often distinguish as black versus Latino versus, you know, white. Right. Um, that's kind of like traditional American racial construct in the Bronx means something like a little bit different because, yeah. you know, it's, it's a primarily Puerto Rican and Dominican uh, you know, ethnic enclave, right? And so you have a lot of, you know, you have people that are, you know, very dark skinned who right, are, right, right. but who, you know, only speak Spanish. And you have yeah. people who are, you know, very, um, you know, sort of brown skinned, but have like kinky hair and afro, right? And like the, those racial lines are, are just a little more gray, um, mm -hmm. I think in, in that type of a context. But I do think it's fair to say that that even from a perception standpoint, before seeing this data that confirmed that the demographic most harmed by this policy was black youth, um, that that would have been my assumption as well. Right. That like the behavior of the police was um, was just one of being this sort of ever present, harassing, invading force that, um, you know, that was contrary to the very public language of folks like Michael Bloomberg is saying like, well, we got to, you know, get the guns off the street and this and that, you know, all the data very clearly shows, right. That like they, they do all these stops, 90% of which turn up no contraband whatsoever. Right. And there's literally no other acceptable political context in which we could do that to a group of people like stop, invade their personal privacy, clearly violate their fourth amendment rights. Right. And 90% of the time turn up nothing. Right. And then let's be real, the other 10% of the time, it's not like they were coming up with, you know, like bombs and, you know, yeah. like serious infractions. Most of what they found was, was ridiculous, petty, you know, little bit of weed, the kind of stuff that frankly, hipster white folks are selling down the block here, you know, with, with uh, weed infused oils that you can, you know, put in your baked goods now. Right, right. Um, and are making serious cash off of, you know, off of that as an industry. Meanwhile, we we shifted a whole, you know, sort of generation of young people into the the kind of inescapable rut of the of the criminal justice system because of this type of policy, right? And so for the kids who didn't get caught up in the actual like carceral state of it right but just had to experience the harassment the dehumanization of it um you know it it was it was a situation where it was not unusual uh, to speak to students about their experience with police as being one of like these people are here to just degrade us in in one form or another right and like have no respect for police, even in the even in the context of like you know, when when bad things happen or someone's abusing their spouse or something, right. like who do you call? You want to call the police or whatever, right? But like even those kinds of things, like people just couldn't respect in the same way, right? Because of 
because of the just constant harassment. Um, and so, you know, it was it was a presence. It was a very clear presence. The kind of kind of impacts in schools, kids being late to school, kids um, not wanting to you know leave at certain times, or mm. those sorts of things were were very real. So this this study certainly resonated with my my experience during that time as an educator. Yeah, the thing this had me thinking about is, you know, those students that you just mentioned either being late or not wanting to leave at a particular time. The 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 article in Chalkbeat, which we'll um, link on our website, also mentioned or profiled teachers or folks who taught during that time uh, in their describing incidents they had with students where a student w was showing up just um, already just like enraged at uh, being violated or feeling um, violated by uh, being stopped and frisked on the way to school and just how difficult it was to lead a lesson and, and, and um, you know, focus on teaching so-called when students are in that sort of emotional place. And it really had me thinking about just the, the many ways that our society in general and stop and frisk in New York City during this time specifically um, signals to students that they're, to marginalized students most especially, that they're just not worth much and uh, how many times they are um, sent this message that they are less than either they're sent that message through the crappy um, conditions in their schools in terms of the actual facilities um, being run down and books being old and, and, and beaten up. They're sent that message through, in this case, being stopped on the way to school and basically treated like like they're just permanent suspects. And they're sent that message through, in some cases, uh, low expectations from particular teachers or uh, school rules and oppressive conditions within their own climate and context. And just so many ways that our system and our, our society beats down on students, most especially um, black students and just this like the long lasting damage. So this study is looking at middle schools between 2006 and 2012. So it's 2020 now. So I'm trying to think about like the, the lifelong trajectory of these students who's who are numbers in this study and where they are now as adults. You know, this might be uh, per percentage points here and there, but those are lives. And here we are in 2020. And it's just like those those individuals are still feeling the ramifications of what happened to them back in middle school between 2006 and 2012. And that lasting, I guess, legacy of, you know, this one in particular case, but just more generally, all the different things that have happened to give really, really challenged students the, the extra little push that they needed to go ahead and just drop out or not go to school. Yeah, so it's obviously very sad and tragic in that sense. And then also, I'm just completely frustrated at how uh, this total lack of ownership over this by um, um, Mayor Bloomberg. And yeah, yeah I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so I'm actually really glad that you uh, kind of brought it around for full circle back to Michael Bloomberg, because I have actually had a lot of sort of anxiety recently mm -hmm. <laughs> about talking about um him and his legacy as as New York City mayor and his fitness or lack thereof right. as a presidential candidate and I want to be 100% clear my official stance our official stance is we are not endorsing any candidate as a show um my personal unless stance, somebody wants to sponsor us yes <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we cannot be bought. We cannot be bought. No, but um, but on a personal level, like I do not support Michael Bloomberg at all for president of the United States. And stop and frisk is one of many major reasons for why I think he's totally unfit. Period. End of sentence. But but 
there's some interesting uh, complexity on his legacy in terms of what happened with schools in New York City. And I think this is where like people are very often it's hard for folks to like live and exist in the gray, right? Like black and white is much easier to sort of deal with. But um, at the same time as Michael Bloomberg was an, an actual architect of horrible racist policing practices that did serious harm to the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of black and brown folks who were needlessly harassed and dehumanized by this practice. He was also doing some things with the school system in New York City that um, by any measure uh, resulted in significantly better outcomes for students across the city and significantly better outcomes for black and brown students across the city and um so this like this, what yeah so, so a few things so just from a data point i think the most obvious data point is when he came into office i think that was uh that would have been in let's say 2000, I think in the year 2000, mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was 2002, but somewhere right around then, graduation rates uh, in New York City were under 50%, high school graduation rates, under 50%, right? Um, and for, um, for black males in particular, were under 40%, I believe at that time, right? So we're talking about the vast majority were not finishing high school. So put aside the whole conversation right. about college and all that, like not even finishing high school, right? I mean, the, the New York City Department of Education was a dropout factory unto itself, right? And uh, through a bunch of major reforms, one, he got mayoral control of the school system. So essentially could carry out a coherent policy initiative. Um, they, along with the investments from a lot of other places, Gates Foundation gave a ton of money to start um, a bunch of new small schools. So they phased out, um, which means like closing the big, uh, you know, comprehensive high schools that existed. And in those same schools created new small schools, right? On the sort of theory that, that um, creating smaller, more intimate learning environments where kids could be known and, and that sort of thing would lead to better outcomes. Um, you know, brought in a huge amount of talent from around the country. Um, you know, folks who were excited about this kind of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial environment and wanted to come in and create new schools and exciting schools themed around, you know, different things, sports management and law and, you know, um, right. civic engagement and reading and writing and all kinds of stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I won't, uh, I'll just kind of leave it there, right? But several major reforms, um, by the time he left office, graduation rates were nearly 70% um, in New York City, right? And uh, above 50% for, uh, for black males, mm. right? So we're, we're talking about undeniable, substantial, double-digit growth, right, um, in his, uh, his three terms in office. Now, there is plenty of room for criticism uh, about you know, what he did. And that was also the no child left behind era. So all the problems that happened nationally with no child right. left behind happened in New York too, right? Too much emphasis on testing and those sorts of things. But, um, but also, uh, you know, there were some, there were some really smart things that were done mm -hmm. and some things that, uh, produced undeniably better outcomes. And as a person who came up as a teacher in like the very early phases of his time in charge of the schools, and 
because of that, I kind of got to see the tail end of like the old system mm -hmm. where frankly, there was a lot of just like ridiculous bureaucratic mess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, schools in East Harlem, schools in the South Bronx had like the most ineffective supports from the district. People who like were not necessarily, you know, the strongest administrators of the system to, you know, make sure schools were getting the supports they needed and all that kind of stuff. And then the richer, nicer parts of the city had better services, right? So interrupting those kind of things, um, you know, the, the, the old way was not good, man. <laughs> like it was really <laughs> bad. And, uh, and whether you like all the changes they put into place or not, like they're not, you know, there's gray area there too. But um, we're talking about a, a sort of regime of reform that produced pretty massive results in a relatively short amount of time. Mm. And um, it's, it's interesting that this is coming back up now as he's like dumping, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into this uh, presidential campaign. Um, because actually, I think, you know, the, the funny thing, not funny in the tragic sense is... You know, there are there are some positive things he probably could have, you know, really be bragging about in some ways, but that are totally handicapped by like, you know, you can't be the architect of racist, yeah. racist policing yeah. and then talking about, but I helped some kids graduate from school, yeah. man, right? But small like, learning communities. Yeah, you're yeah. like, you're small cutting schools. your knees off your own yeah. argument there, right? So, um, but it is, you know, it's an interesting duality that I think we, right. we have to play with, right? It's like at the same time as you were harassing kids on their way to school, you were doing a lot to make sure that their time at school was actually going to be better than it was, you know? And some of this included things like substantially raising teacher salaries, even though he was constantly beefing with the union, um, you know, yeah. holding principals much more accountable, right? Um, you know, like... Hmm changing the culture around like well i guess you know all these black and brown kids just don't want to do school or their parents don't care about school like you know yeah. that kind of stuff was challenged so um i don't know it's yeah. a it's an interesting mess of conflicting factors here interesting mess is i think an ongoing theme in education because things are complex and um, nothing about what we do is, is straightforward, easy. But this also, as a California teacher, for me, this, this resonates in the sense of our national discussion about police and their presence in schools and around schools and yeah, the, the dynamic there. Because of course, in the, in the wake of so many, so many tragic incidents across our schools regarding uh, mass shootings, uh, a lot of folks have, have pointed towards we need more police. We need more law enforcement on campus, near campus to respond to these incidents. And I think this study points out that the impact of that uh, doesn't work the same way for all students because in a lot of communities, particularly uh, a, a lower income black community, uh, police presence does the opposite of give reassurance and make somebody feel better about um, their uh, their school day. And, and this this story in Chalkbeat also points to a, a comment made by, or statement by a Harvard sociology professor. I don't quite know how to pronounce his name, but I'm gonna go with um, Yosha. What, what do you think about that last name, Jeff? Legui. We'll go with that. Yeah, we apologize. We do apologize um, to Professor Legui. Um, Harvard sociology professor, um, he conducted separate research that illustrated this, a similar phenomenon, basically increased police presence near New York City middle schools, led to lower test scores among black male students 
And, you know, that coincides with the findings of this stop and frisk study. And there's other research out there. Research in Texas has found that security officers in schools can lead to declines in high school graduation and college attendance. I, I don't think we're short on data that points to the fact that more police around students um, doesn't have the beneficial impact that some might might think it has, particularly for students who come from communities who have been um, who have a long history of tension with police departments and police officers and various forms of injustice being hur hurled upon them and their families. So this study, I think, even though we don't have stop and frisk as a policy in the city that I teach in, um, it does speak to the fact that having more police around doesn't help our students. In fact, more police harms many of our students. And this study, I think, is just the latest to um, to show us that. Yeah. Yeah, you know what What also, uh, and I guess it's not surprising on a certain level, but it just, like, it just pissed me off, man. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, in the Chalkbeat article, they have a lovely graphic um, that talks about uh, the high school, the impact of stop and frisk policy on high school graduation rates of the cohorts of kids that they were right. looking at. And of course, the demographic group that was most harmed was black students that experienced a um, 1.8 percentage point decrease in likelihood of graduating from right. high school as a result of stop and frisk. The results for Hispanic students, which again, in, in certain parts of New York, the lines between black yeah. and Hispanic are interesting. So I'd be curious as to how they disaggregated there. But nonetheless, the impact for Hispanic and Asian students was sort of close enough to zero that, that um, either in the positive or negative direction, that may or may not have been substantial. And then wouldn't you know that hmm. white students experienced a nearly 1% uh, advantage uh, being more likelihood to graduate from high school as a result of these policies. Now, I'm not saying that white high school, white middle school kids in 2006 had any responsibility for or like intention right, right, around right. the results of this system, right? But it's just like salt in the wound, man. They're yeah. like, um, you already got... Yeah. advantages <laughs> and like yeah. and then you put in place this policy and not only does it do harm but then it helps right the white kids right and like this yeah. america it just has a way of finding out ways to do stuff like this yeah uh that's if there's anything that america is is expert at it's it's stuff like this i mean here we have significant negative impact of stop and frisk on black students. And not just is it not neutral for white students, it actually benefited white students, which is just crazy. Yeah. You know, like let's throw some more police out there, right. boost graduation right. rates. Exactly. Like, yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. It's crazy. It's that, totally crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is, this is just such a concrete, clear example of the fact that over policing of communities in any context is just a harmful practice right yeah. like this it exacerbates all the bad stuff yeah. uh, in society and um you know we we should learn from this data we um, should we shouldn't have to wait for a federal judge you know right. and a, pre a conveniently timed apology next to yeah. a presidential campaign to to realize that like these are terrible ideas and we should yeah. never do them again I like how the article has the uh, photo of um, Mike Bloomberg's um, campaign speech with the uh, Mike for Black America 
sign on his podium. Um, I just, I'm still, every time I hear that, Mike for Black America, it's just like, uh, all right, Mike, if you say so. Yeah, man. Ain't nobody, ain't, no, ain't, no ain't nobody for Black, America, for Black America, first of all. Who's that, that is specifically, just, a, that is a marketing campaign that, that they made up. Like, Have, there's oh, 0% chance, like, somebody who's not getting paid belongs yeah. to Mike for Black America. Yeah, for sure. Know? And I, I'm, you know, even apart from my personal feelings about yeah. him, come on, man, you've been in the race for like six hours, and you got yeah. Mike for Black America. Get out of here. All right, folks. Um, thanks for joining us for this passing period. We'll be back next week with another full episode, chock full of multiple headlines and a deep dive into um, topics affecting our schools today. If you haven't already, um, please check out our YouTube page because this Passing period is a extra just for our podcast listeners. Those who follow us on YouTube don't um, don't get these passing periods, but they do get a whole bunch of other extras, including one-on-one interviews, some um, vlogs that I filmed from my classroom about my own classroom practices, and some extra shorts, all, all kinds of stuff on the YouTube channel. So uh, youtube.com slash all of the above, and you'll see all that, or just head to our website, aotashow.com, and everything's there. All right, so thanks for tuning in, folks. We will check you out next time. But for now, get to class. <laughs>